We're going to be in Judges chapter 6 today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, or you can flip your bulletin over, and the principal verse that we'll be using is right on the back of that. We're going to be talking about the God of peace today. And as we saw in the video that we just watched, the sense of peace is a very rare commodity in our world today, isn't it? We have sounds and stimulus and everything else coming at us from all sides. Everything that's trying to draw our attention. And sometimes it's just a lot of noise that we deal with. Tammy and I just went down to Kenosha this uh, last week and we got out of the car in the city and we were just, just bombarded with noise compared to living here. You walk out at, in the evenings and you might hear a car occasionally go past but it's just so quiet here compared to going to a city how noisy a city is and so we want to talk about the God of peace this morning and I want to talk about peace and particularly in how God uses this attribute of himself to describe another part of his nature even so much that he calls himself in the Bible Yahweh Shalom the God of peace And as I was studying for today's message, the Lord reminded me about a time in my own life that I'm going to tell you about this morning, and it was a time that before I knew Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Year is 1987, I'm about 17 years old. Now, I wasn't a very good person growing up, I didn't know Jesus as Savior, very rebellious child, and I left home at 16 because I just didn't want to follow the rules anymore. Essentially, I was homeless for a couple of years. I was kind of crashing on couch to couch of friends until they got sick of me and kicked me out, and I'd go find another couch to crash on. And finally, ended up a friend of mine and I, who was kind of doing the same thing, uh, ended up finding this little uh, room, single room that we both um, rented out together, down in kind of the ghetto of Kenosha, and it was pretty poor. To, put, to say the least. There was like five or six rooms in this place. It had a common bathroom. So you're sharing the same bathroom with five or six rooms. It had a common kitchen. To say that they were not well kept would be an understatement. We slept with the cockroaches the ro- and the rats and the mice and, and everything else. And, and it was just kind of a poor situation to be living in. And I remember one day... Um, Thanksgiving, 1987, my friend got invited home for Thanksgiving, so I'm sitting there all by myself in this apart in this little little inky dinky room that we had, and I decided that I just didn't want to sit there anymore, so I decided to go for a walk, and I'm wandering through the city, and ended up about a half mile from my mom's house. And walking past all these houses and just listening to everybody celebrating um, Thanksgiving, all the families laughing and talking and, and joking and sharing, uh, sharing just um, the company of one another, and reminded that, you know, during this time of year, this is what this is about, being in the fellowship of, with your loved ones. And it was my first glimpse in my life to the loneliness of being apart from my family, And I believe that God used that situation to be able to speak to my heart about how he felt me being separated from him. And what he began to show me, just in little pieces, was that this freedom that I wanted from my parents, this freedom that I wanted to not have to follow any rules, to live my own life, to be free of restriction from everybody, 
It was an illusion. It was a lie. The so-called freedom that I sought from my parents, it came with a price. It came with shackledness or shackles of loneliness. It came with separation from my family. It came with guilt over many of the things that I had done. And I longed for that moment for the peace of home. And looking back at my life, I know what God was even beginning to teach me even before I really knew him. He began to teach me a very important spiritual truth that most sin and most misery in life is rooted in mankind's attempt to have peace or fulfillment apart from God. So today we're going to talk about Yahweh Shalom, the Lord of Peace. And we're going to start by looking at the biblical reference found in Judges chapter 6 within the life of Gideon. Now a little bit of background. We recently studied Gideon during our Heroes of the Faith series, so some of this is going to be fresh in many of your minds. But I want to focus on the event that changed everything for him. If you remember, Gideon and his father were very heavy into idolatry and the worship of a false god called Baal. The Lord appears to Gideon in the angel of the Lord. Now in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was called a theophany or a Christophany. It's a big theological word you get to learn today. It means a pre-incarnate manifestation of a deity. In other words, this was Jesus Christ appearing to him before Jesus Christ was revealed as Messiah. So Jesus appears to him and gives Gideon a mission to drive the Midianites out of the land. The Midianites had been oppressing the people of Israel. Gideon asks for a sign, and he tells Jesus to wait until he can prepare an offering for Yahweh God, not understanding that he's actually speaking to a member of the Trinity. Jesus gives Gideon permission and sends him to prepare the offering. So Gideon prepares the offering, and that's where we pick up the narrative in Gideon's life in Judges chapter 6, verse 20. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of his staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. The angel of the Lord disappeared. When, angel re when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. Father God, I ask that you be with us this morning because many of us experience this thing called anxiety. Many of us experience this thing called fear. Many of us are just so overwhelmed by the things of life that we long for the peace that the Bible says that we can have. So I ask, Father, that you just use this message this morning to do just that, to understand that you are the God of peace and you want to give us your peace. Father God, be with us this morning. Let your word sink deep into our heart and let us be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to introduce you to the name of God that shows us a part of him that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll need to know and understand above all else to live in these last days. And that is that name of Yahweh Shalom. 
And I say that, that this is one of the most important because Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 24 that in the last days it's going to get so bad that men's hearts will fail them for fear. We saw in the life of Gideon through the scripture we just read, there are a few fundamentals and a few keys that you'll have to follow in order to achieve real peace. And the first one that we see in the life of Gideon here is that you need to meet with God. Gideon met with God Almighty through the angel of the Lord, and he didn't even realize it initially. But once Gideon realized who he was talking to, an incredible change takes place. It's interesting because Gideon thinks at the moment of realization, when he realizes who he's talking to, he thinks that he's in mortal danger. He thinks that this is it. Because he knows that the law of Moses says that no one can see God and live. So in Gideon, in his mind, he thinks, I'm a dead man. I'm, I'm history. I might as well just quick, while I have a chance here, scratch out a quick will before I drop dead. He knows God's judgment is coming because of his father's and his um, involvement in idolatry and worship of Baal. He knows that there's no chance that he's going to get out of this. After all, he's grown up learning and hearing the stories of people that have rebelled against God especially the people in, in the desert who are bitten by snakes, they're struck down by plagues, even swallowed up by a ground. So Gideon is expecting God's righteous judgment here. And God would have been right in judging him. He's probably broken all the Ten Commandments by worshiping Baal and all the 613 laws found in the Torah. That's why when the weight of sin bears heavy on your soul, you need to go and meet with God. He wants to meet with you. But it's our human nature to want to run away when he's saying, come back to me. Why is this critical? It's critical for a per proper perspective on ourselves. Most of our rebellion is because we have raised ourselves up be over the top of God, and we need to have that perspective reestablished in our life. Christian author and pastor Rex Andrews has a famous quote that says, the fear of the devil is lost in the wonder of the Lord. That statement is actually over um, on the, on the, painted on the wall of the prayer room at Prayer House. Because it's so true. Because only by meeting with God and seeing him for who he is can we see ourselves and our situation in their proper perspective. And when Gideon meets with God and experiences his power and his presence, he reacts with awe. He receives what he really needed in this situation, which was grace. The weight and the guilt and the fear that sin brought to him was lifted at this moment. I think Gideon, if he would have lived a few hundred or a few thousand years later, could have been the one that penned the first few verses of Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And this amazing grace dropped Gideon to his knees in repentance. And grace began to flow into his life. Instead of seeing himself for a miserable failure, he saw himself the same way that you and I should see ourselves. 
we should see that God is God, not us. We're not God. He is God. We need Him in our lives in a vital, personal relationship. And that is the first key and the first step to achieving peace in our lives, to experiencing Yahweh Shalom as He wants to be experienced. The second key toward peace is this, that God Himself is our peace. And you see this in Ephesians 2.14. That through a relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, we can know him as Yahweh Shalom. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. You know that Christianity is unique among the world religions. One, because we know it to be the true religion, but it's also the only one that doesn't have something you have to do or perform in order to be saved. For example, Islam says, submit and obey and you will know peace. Some of the more radical ones even include jihad with that and holy war. Hinduism believes let your good works outweigh your bad works and you'll be okay. You'll move on to a higher form of reincarnation. Buddhism Understand, um, believes that you just need to understand there is no reality. It's an illusion. If you've seen the Matrix, you would say, well, there is no spoon. That's the way that they understand it. It's all just an illusion. Scientology believes that expose and erase the negative engrams of your past life and you'll achieve the clear, which is the ultimate sense of peace. Atheism says, believe it, whatever you want, or live the way you want, and you can find peace however you can along the way. Christianity is unique because the way that we experience peace is found in the one that we worship. By not, trying to, not by trying to do a set of tasks for the one we worship, we simply come to the one we worship. Our God is a personal God. He wants to come and live within us. And bring that characteristic of himself with him, which is his peace, which is Yahweh Shalom. And that is why our peace is found in Christ living within us. Ephesians has an interesting way of putting this, that Christ destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What's all that about? What's what's this dividing wall of hostility that he's talking about? If you remember within the tabernacle and later in the temple, there's a very thick curtain. Some theologians believe this was six inches to a foot thick curtain that resided between the holy place and the most holy place where God's presence literally dwelt over the top of the mercy seat which covered the ark. This curtain could only be passed through one time a year and only by the high priest, and only to bring the correct sacrifice, and only after an elaborate set of rituals that would purify him before God. And then he would go in with the the blood of a bull and sprinkle it over the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. Today we call that Yom Kippur, and that is what the, the day of atonement that the Jewish people celebrate every year. That curtain was considered a visual representation of mankind's sin before a perfect and a holy God. So if anyone apart from that high priest and on any other day than the day of atonement attempted to cross that curtain, they would immediately fall dead before a holy God. 
I'd really have a hard time asking people to clean the church if that existed today, wouldn't I? Nobody would nobody want to come anywhere near it. We'd, we'd all be signing up to mow the lawn, and nobody would want to come in to clean. That's the dividing wall of hostility that Paul is referring to here. But what happened when Jesus died? You see, this is why everybody who has a certain sin in their life, they don't want to come before God, or they don't want to come to church, or they, they don't want to approach the place where God is because they, they think that if they bring this anywhere near God, that God's just going to strike them dead. I mean, how many people have heard, you know, if I enter that church, the walls would fall down, or the roof would cave in, and all this kind of thing. But what did God do when Jesus died? What happened to that curtain? It was ripped from the top to the bottom. It was like God reached down from heaven, tore it down apart, and with a great shout, he said, no more. No more will my people have to be eternally separated from me. No more will they have to stand at a distance while just a select few approach me. No more will they have to trust in a dead religious ritual. No more will they have to fear my wrath. No more will they be subject to Adam's curse. I have destroyed the barrier, that dividing wall of hostility. He said that I, the Lord, declare victory over sin and death, and now I will restore a people to me so that I can live with them and bring them peace. Because my name is Yahweh Shalom. I will restore what the devil tried to destroy. And that brings us to our third key of knowing Yahweh Shalom. We learn that experiencing God is the first step. Knowing God destroyed the barrier and restored us to him as he comes to live and reign in our hearts is a second. And now we need to learn to live with him day to day. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Living with God day to day involves some spiritual disciplines that are vital for us to live a victorious life in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul lists a few of them here. First he says, rejoice. Praise God no matter what. I remember we had a gentleman in the hospital a few weeks ago that was hit by a car. And we're waiting for the helicopter to come get him. And, and I, I was just um, help cleaning him up, getting him ready for the helicopter to take him over to a trauma center and everything. And... and he was just complaining and, and everything and all that. And I said, hey, it could be worse, right? He goes, I just got ran over by a car. How could it be even worse? I said, could have been a semi. I mean, there's always some reason to give thanks to God. There's always some reason to give praise to God. I mean, even if, a, if I got, walk out or walking home today, somehow get hit by a car I, and it kills me, I'll be with Jesus. So I have a reason to rejoice no matter what. 
I mean, if even if you right now can look at your life and say, I don't have anything to be thankful for. I don't have anything to rejoice over. Jesus Christ died for your sins. You don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. If you can't praise God because of that, you need a heart transplant. and You need to get down to this altar. The second thing he tells us is don't be anxious. Anxiety is fear. That's all anxiety is. Fear is, it's been said that fear is an acronym for false evidence appearing real. And let me tell you something about fear that he's talking about here. Fear is a devil's language. It comes from allowing him to sow those thoughts of fear, of doubt, and unbelief, thoughts of inadequacy, fear of the unknown, fear of or fear of the known. It's a devil's playground. And you know what? You're not supposed to be in the devil's neighborhood if you are a Christian. So you should not be experiencing anxiety or fear. Get out of his neighborhood and come home. Start reading his word. Get into your presence. Get into your father's arms. Start praying through your fear, speaking scriptural faith into those situations that are causing you fear. Because that's the only way you can defeat fear and anxiety in your life. Third thing that Paul tells us to do is pray about everything. Prayer is nothing more than talking to God. So develop your prayer list. Develop the discipline of prayer. Keep prayer journals filled with prayers to God. And then write down when God answers those prayers. Nothing builds your faith more than watching and acknowledging when God has answered a prayer in your life. That's what made that movie we watched a few months ago, The War Room, so powerful. The importance and power of prayer. And when you get that into your heart, you will have that peace of God. Because you know you've already given this situation to God. And he's working on it behind the scenes. In all that you do, develop a heart of thanksgiving. If you manage to rejoice through your situations and refuse to give in from fe into fear and pray about everything, thanksgiving will pour out of you like a river of living water, not only to refresh your soul, not only to refresh your spirit, but it will begin to refresh everybody else around you. If you discipline your heart, mind, and soul toward these four spiritual disciplines, then a promise Comes. You see, too many people want to claim the promise, but they don't want to see everything that went in to the promise. The promise comes that says that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. That is how we know Yahweh Shalom in our lives. As we conclude this morning, I want to give you two final thoughts from the scripture about having Yahweh Shalom guarding your hearts and minds. Two final charges from Paul regarding um, these two final things here. If you struggle with having peace with God, you'll want to write these scriptural uh, references down and pray through them and ask God for help with this. First one is found in 2 Corinthians 10.5. It says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And listen to this part. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So when you're down, you're depressed, you're tired, don't let your mind wander. Don't sit there and dwell in it because that's when the devil's going to mess with you. Speak faith into that situation. Oh God, I'm tired today. I have no idea what I'm going to preach about next Sunday. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know what? I need to speak faith into that situation. I need to say, God, you have a word for those people. I'm just sitting here. I'm going to listen to you say it. Speak faith. Don't speak the negative. And if you do all those, the final scripture this morning will help you determine which one of these thoughts you should be focusing on. And that one's found in Philippians 4, verse 8. That says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If you do all that, you have the promise that says that the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that if your people will take this word to heart this morning because we need to have you, Yahweh Shalom, living within us. Father, if there be anybody that needs to meet with you today, let them meet with you, Father. If there be sin, if there be anxiety, if there be fear, whatever it is, let them lay it at the altar and leave it there. And let that space that they were giving to, to that issue, let that be filled with you instead. Father, let people learn that you are their peace. That they won't seek it through TV. They won't seek it through drugs or alcohol or any other thing. But they will seek it only through you. Father, I ask, Lord, that you give your people the discipline. The discipline that they need to live for you, Father. Discipline is a bad word in today's church. But throughout, your, throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, we are told to discipline ourselves and to let you discipline us. So it must be important. Father, give us the spiritual oomph, the spiritual prowess, Father, to discipline ourselves in the areas that we are lacking. Because we want to be used for the maximum effectiveness for your kingdom in this generation. And Father, finally I ask, Lord, for those who suffer from anxiety, that you will help them, Lord, take captive every thought and make it obedient to you. That whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is noble, lovely, admirable, excellent or praiseworthy, that those are the things they think about. Those are the things they enter, allow to enter into their heart, Father. 